Welcome back to the Winter War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode four. The Russians have invaded on a broad front stretching from the Karelia Isthmus all the way to the Arctic Sea. Ten major incursions in all. When the Soviets attacked on November 30th, they did so without declaring war. They just rolled in. As you heard last episode, by day two of the Soviet invasion, December 2nd, 1939, the Finns were facing the might of the Red Army, and the prognosis was not good. But they had a chance to carry out Finnish General Gustav Mannerheim's master plan, letting the Russians in, then striking them behind their lines. There wasn't much else the Finnish army could do. It was hopelessly outgunned and outmanned. Within 48 hours of the invasion, however, the Russian mechanized columns had bunched up. Their lines of supply jammed bumper to bumper. Heavy snowstorms were also lashing the advancing columns, adding to the chaos. Mannerheim wanted to throw his covering troops of 21,000 along the isthmus forward of the defensive line, but his chief of staff, General Hugo Ostermann, thought this was a mistake. They were covering a string of villages here, and each day they remained behind these fortifications was a day spent improving defences, digging deeper, laying mines, blowing up bridges. The Soviet military leaders believed that a decisive strike across the Karelia Isthmus would be the key to victory. The Soviet 7th Army was based south of this isthmus, 120,000 men, 1,400 tanks, 1,500 artillery pieces, all backed up by over 1,000 planes of various sorts. The Finns along the isthmus were led by Lieutenant General Hugo Ostermann, who had 26,000 infantry and only 71 artillery pieces. This army was split, with two army corps led by Lieutenant General Harald Ochwist on the west side of the isthmus and the three army corps on the east, led by Major General Erik Heinrichs. Another division of Finns was behind the covering groups held back in reserve near the lakes Sulajavi and Valkjavi. On the eastern side of the Isthmus, three army corps was made up of Task Force Rautu and the 11th Division Task Force Lepola, named after the villages there. By day two, the Russians had moved to the eastern edge of Teriyoki village and the buildings were on fire. Fierce fighting had taken place here. Russian tanks were now causing consternation. Never before had Finns faced such a weapon and they had none of their own. The Russians used their armor like cavalry, charging straight into battle, and the effect on the Finns was immediate and shattering. This led partly to a preemptory retreat that was to embarrass the Finnish army. Ostermann heard that the Russians had achieved a major armored breakthrough on the Baltic coast to the south along the western side of the isthmus, just a few kilometers in front of the Suma sector and behind the Mannerheim line. He ordered the withdrawal of the Finns based here, but it was a false alarm. By the time the order had been rescinded, it was too late, and a swathe of Finnish territory had basically been given up without a fight. Mannerheim almost burst a blood vessel when he heard about the faux pas, ordering the general in charge, Ockwist, to turn around and take his men back, but he refused. Ockwist, in typical Finnish character, said it was a waste of time and the territory wasn't worth the effort. By now, Mannerheim's original plan to move the 21,000 men in front of the line was part of the problem. His men were already tired of marching around for two days, trying to stem the flow of Russians into the isthmus. But it led to this poor communication, and who was to blame? It was partly due to the fear of the unknown. Their neighbor to the south, Estonia, had been bullied into a series of agreements with the Russians. Soon after Hitler attacked Poland, Stalin had made demands on the governments of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania to station his troops on their territory. Estonia buckled. Moscow was a big hungry bear next door. 
As soon as the Russian army and navy descended in October 1939, while Finland was rejecting the same demands, the Estonians realised that the independence was over. They had accepted Moscow's demands to place Soviet bases on the islands of Sarama and Hioma, as well as Paldiski on the mainland, and ships in the harbour of Tallinn. Now Moscow wanted much more and proceeded to build large military bases at Hapsalu and Lihula in the northwest. They had developed air bases as well at Kusiku and Ketna. The Red Air Force had already flown bombing raids into Finland from these bases, so the Finns were naturally extremely skittish about their positions along the Baltic. Compounding the Finns' fear of the unknown by now was their poor communication equipment. They had old-fashioned heavy devices, nothing was portable, and they were actually relying on telephones and messages sent by hand. Their mid-level officer corps was untested, and this meant they were likely to believe the worst before anything else. They were conforming to Clausewitz's intelligence in war statement, which says, As a rule, most men would rather believe bad news than good, and rather tend to exaggerate the bad news. So on December 4th, Mannerheim was beyond furious and stormed into Osterman's headquarters in Imatra. General Ockwist had been ordered from the front to join this tongue-lashing ceremony by the old soldier. Mannerheim basically accused Osterman of being behind the collapse of his cherished forward zone because he was well known to be lukewarm in support of the whole idea of sending forward troops ahead of this line. In what you could call a Monty Pythonesque moment, Osterman offered to resign and then so did Mannerheim. Both men realized what would happen to the Finnish army morale if they resigned, so both immediately retracted. Then again, it wasn't all bad news. Finnish soldiers had started to deploy clever tactics to deal with the terrifying tanks. Some were creeping up and stuffing logs in the bogey wheels, immobilizing them. Others used crowbars. Then, of course, they perfected the design of the Molotov cocktail, as I mentioned at the end of last episode, and the Helsinki State Liquor Board responded to the call for empty bottles rushing thousands to the front. The Finns turned to their manufacturing skills and churned out tens of thousands of these weapons, not just bottles filled with petrol, oh no, but bottles of blended kerosene, tar, potassium chloride, petrol, and then set off by an ampule of sulfuric acid taped to the neck. Other bottles were stuffed with this malignant concoction as well as a vial of nitroglycerine, giving the explosive an added kick, while they also began taping together sticks of grenades, which were very effective against tank traps. 20-pound satchel charges were added into this mix, but that meant creeping all the way up to a tank and throwing it underneath, leaving the casualty rate of tank attackers at an unsustainable level of 70%. But the Finnish army never ran out of volunteers for this wicked job. The soldier would dig a hole sometimes along the roots used by the tanks and then lie in this hole, waiting until one rolled over him. The satchel would be stuffed into the tracks. Sometimes the blast would kill the attacker as well as blow up the tank. A change began to take place in the Finnish consciousness, and this was going to be very bad news for the Russians. The first few days of fighting had actually given the Finns a good idea about the Russian weaknesses. Their slow-witted officer class, fearful of their political commissars, unimaginative, ponderous. The Finnish fox was outthinking the Russian bear. Stories began to circulate amongst the troops about how abysmally the Russians were fighting, despite their vast army and resources, and this stiffened resolve. Sometimes morale is more important than ammunition. The Red Army artillery took nearly two days to catch up and dig in closer to the front. 
The soldiers there had already begun a lethargic routine, almost like labourers digging a trench for a pipeline. At dawn, the Russian soldiers would jump down from their trucks and walk toward the Finnish lines, and the Finns, when facing massive numbers, would simply withdraw, live to fight another day. Similar in a way to what the Boers had done to the British during the Anglo-Boer War of 1899-1902. Later on in the day, as the sun slanted to the west, these same Russians would withdraw eastwards and dig in behind a circle of tanks parked with their lights on and their guns pointing outwards. Again, a similar tactic to the Boers, as they had fought African warriors on the felt with their wagons formed up in what was known as lagers. The Russians would burn huge fires inside these tank lagers, while the Finns crept back to their old positions, often finding bits of discarded Russian equipment, maps, and other paraphernalia. During the first week of this invasion, then, there was a strange game of attack and retreat playing out along the isthmus. And by the end of the first week of fighting there, the delaying action had cost the Russians thousands of casualties, while the Finns had lost 133 dead, 79 missing, 188 wounded. The Soviets' 24th Rifle Division, for example, had made it to the main defensive lines but could not break through. The delay had bought the Finns precious time to complete the civilian evacuations I spoke about last episode, and also provided them with the time to camouflage their fortifications. The fact that the Soviets only had to advance 50 kilometers to seize the entire isthmus made the defense even more heroic. In the northern part, near the southern shores of Lake Ladoga, Russian General Meretskov had a creative plan. The Finns fully expected the attacks on the isthmus to be concentrated along the Baltic shoreline near Vipuri, along something that was being called the Vipuri Gateway, near Suma. Instead, Meritskov planned to trick the Finns at first and launch the attack on the northern section of the Mannerheim line, close to Taipali, named after the small Ladogan fishing village. By using a strong feint attack here, Meritskov was hoping that Mannerheim would send some of his troops from the Vaipuri defences to shore up the villages near Ladoga. Then he would strike the isthmus along the Baltic coast. The problem with the Russian plan was that the Finnish 10th Division, which was dug in at Taipali, had reached their own conclusions about what was going to happen. They knew that Mannerheim had no reserves, so they regarded themselves as on their own, and furthermore, Mannerheim had figured out what game Meritskov was trying to play. If you glance at a map of the region, the town which was called Taipali is now called Solovyovo, in the Leningrad Oblast. There is a long finger-like promontory, or peninsula, that extends almost straight south, ending at the Taipalo River, now called the Bumayareka. To the west is the Suvanto branch of the Vokshi Waterway, and to the east the vast Lake Ladoga. The Soviet 13th Army would attack through this peninsula, or promontory, which was really a succession of wetlands and bogs. As they approached along this finger, having crossed the Taipali River, they were facing Finns who were on slightly elevated ground. Mannerheim had cleverly decided to build defensive slightly back from the river, and his men lay in bunkers and trenches on dry territory, while the enemy was going to be clumping through the surrounding bog. Mannerheim's defences were stretched from the village of Kelya in the north to Parimiko and Botonyemi, then swung east to Taipali on the edge of Lake Ladoga. The narrow tip of the promontory or mini peninsula was called Kokunimi and was a no-man's land. There was no cover here, and worse for the Red Army, the Finns had carefully and methodically ranged every foot of this promontory. By the 6th of December, Finland's Independence Day, the Russian artillery was in place just south of the Taipali River, and these heavy guns began firing almost immediately. Four hours later, the bombardment ceased, 
and hundreds of Red Army infantry swarmed towards the Lossy Ferry landing but were repulsed. The Soviets planned to cross the Taipali River at three locations. Watching them closely was Colonel Vilyo Kapila's 10th Division. The obsolete cannons of the Finns were still functional, and these peppered the Kokonimi Peninsula, causing hundreds of Russian casualties. After that, a series of artillery duels took place along the peninsula and the lines up to Kalia when a second Russian division joined. The artillery fire from the Finns was so accurate that the Karkanyoki battery became known as the Angel of Taipali. The Russians had also increased the number of artillery batteries now to 57, facing them with the Finns' obsolete 1905 weapons and only nine. This was not a fair fight, but the Finns were not yet done around Taipali. The Soviet 19th Rifle Regiment, for example, lost most of its senior officers and so many men that eventually the entire regiment had to be withdrawn from the front. On the 13th of December, Meritskov ordered a new offensive using the full might of his forces on the right. Apart from the 30,000 men of the 49th and 150th Rifle Divisions, he had 30 flamethrower tanks, the T-26s, as well as 69 T-32s. The 57 Russian batteries opened up before dawn on the 14th, a thunderous bombardment that battered the Finnish soldiers who were holed up in their bunkers. The Soviet artillery caused very little damage because they were firing blind into the trees. They were wondering what was going on, though, the Finns. None of their guns fired back. They didn't know that their own artillery could not fire. They were under express orders to protect their stores of shells, which were already running low. At 11.30 on the morning of the 14th of December, the Russian guns fell silent and thousands of Red Army troops poured over the open ground along the southern peninsula, led by 30 tanks. The soldiers walking alongside these tanks were densely packed, like fish in a barrel. The Finn commanders waited until almost seemed the whites of the enemy's eyes, as the tension built fast in their trenches, their men waiting for the command to fire. The Russian soldiers continued to walk towards them as if this was a parade ground practice, while their tanks fired sporadically. Some of the Finns began to take casualties. The men became more impatient. Wait, wait, said the officers. Then the Russians walked straight into the prepared kill zones, and the Finn artillery let rip, along with the machine guns and emplacements that provided a crossfire, combined with the soldiers using their Russian-made rifles. High explosives and anti-personnel shells fell directly onto the tanks and men, leaving the snow reddened by 400 Soviet soldiers who were killed and blackened by the 18 tanks that brewed up. The rest of the tanks fled. The Finns had so few guns that they dragged them back and forth from one prepared position to the next. This meant the Soviets were even more confused about what was really going on. Meritskov sent a third Soviet division back into Taipali, along with more guns, until his battery there numbered 84. The Finns could not reinforce their artillery, and thus they faced this huge, powerful attack with just nine guns, backed up by dozens of machine guns, their rifles, mortars, and grenades. They had also managed to mine a stretch of this defensive zone, and these also took their tolls on the tanks. It was carnage. Dozens of Russian soldiers began to snag on the barbed wire, and wearing grey uniforms, they were easy targets, shot one after the other. It was going to take until after Christmas for the Red Army to gain traction on this front. Meanwhile, Taipali would become a slaughterhouse for the Russians. In the end, the Finnish counterattacks and efforts to hold the Kokunimi Peninsula forward of the main defensive lines around Taipali were not enough. 
Soviet forces took the area, securing a staging zone for further attacks towards Taipali. The Russian 39th Armoured Brigade was on its way to take advantage of this zone. By the 12th of December, the Red Army forces were in a good position to launch an attack across the whole Taipali sector. 13 kilometres west of Taipali, around the village of Kivinyimi, the 24th Infantry Regiment had been waiting for the Russians since the 30th of November. This regiment was part of Colonel Bertel Vinel's 8th Division, which had blown up the road and railway bridges. This regiment routed the first Russian assault. They were well dug in. The setbacks were now having a political effect, with the Soviet 7th Army Commander Yakovlev facing criticism from Chief of Staff Boris Shaposhnikov. This is the last time I warned Commander Yakovlev about the purposeful negligence of his staff concerning the actions of his own troops, he wrote in a terse letter to the 7th Army Commander. It was a dark night on the 7th of December when Yakovlev decided to hurry his troops across the Taipali River, his pontoons full of troops, supported by amphibious T-38 tanks. But the current was strong and dragged the boats and the tanks downstream. Moments later, the Finns switched on their searchlights and the artillery and machine guns opened fire. Of the nine pontoons, only four survived, and most of the troops in these were killed or wounded. A handful of the T-38s made it across the river, but then they couldn't climb the opposite bank. The stones and the rocks were too loose. Yakovlev recommended to Meritskov that the main focus on the isthmus should now move to Vaipuri, to the west. The Finns were too well organized in his sector around Taipali. Before Meritskov could do this, on the 8th of December, the Soviet High Command, or Stavka, ordered all attacks across the entire Karelian Isthmus to be halted and then took over control of the war from the generals on the ground. Meritskov was demoted from officer in command of the entire operation against Finland to leadership of the 7th Army only, and Yakovlev was deemed incompetent. He was transferred back to Moscow. The Stavka then increased the number of combat troops to over 250,000 and added 300 more artillery pieces as well as more tanks and planes. Red Army Commander-in-Chief Clement Yefremovich Voroshilov decided that Yakovlev, despite his weaknesses, was right about one thing and began to focus on the Vikpuri sector of the Isthmus on the Baltic Sea. This caused even more chaos as the Red Army tried to traverse the Isthmus using only two roads and provided the Finns with more time to prepare the western edge of the Isthmus. It was after a week of fighting that Mannerheim made his famous comment that I did not think that my men were so good, or that the Russians could be so bad. Elsewhere, the main road to Tolvajarvi, which lay in central East Finland, and south of that, at Suvalati, was thought of as a possible point of attack. Before the war, the Finns believed it was unlikely the Russians would invade here in any large force. So when the Russians struck along both roads with a powerful force, Mannerheim and his generals were somewhat surprised. The Finnish 4th Corps sector, north of Lake Ladoga, was dug in along a line of entrenched defensive positions, anchored on the lake to the south, and then stretching all the way to Shiskarjavi in the north. Once the Red Army had been brought to a halt, the idea was to drive them back from the right flank, which would most likely be the weakest. Instead, the Russian right flank was comprised of two whole divisions, and facing them were the Finns' modest border forces. Most weren't even full-time soldiers. So, on the 1st of December 1939, the Russian 139th hurled itself against the organization called Task Force Rasanen, the name of the Finnish commander of the unit who led the Finns on the Talvarjarvi road. At the same time, the Red Army's 56th drove straight in along the rough road north and east of Suvalati, aiming at the village of Loimola. 
That was a big problem for the defenders because this would cut off the finish arranged along the eastern edge of Lake Ladoga at Salmi. It was the Red Army's attempt at cutting Finland in two, followed by a swing around Ladoga from the north to strike the Mannerheim line on the Isthmus from the rear. The Finnish 4th Corps was immediately threatened and the entire sector was in danger as the Russians broke deep into Finland's interior. There was the added problem of the line of territory here because the bit of Finland extended east of Sojavi like a bridgehead and was patently exposed. It made no sense to try and defend this, exposed as it was on three sides, the east, the north and the south. As the Russians charged into the Sujavi front, they would face a unique defensive device. This was an old armoured train which dated back to the Finnish Civil War, armed with French guns. The train was nicknamed Yorkie, which means tide or roller, and was going to chug back and forth fighting off the Russians, giving the border guards a very basic form of artillery and armour. Soldiers described how this clanking metal monster steamed out of the mist and snow, blasting off at Russian positions over the coming weeks. It was an eight-car steel machine with an armoured locomotive, a self-contained powerhouse. Two of these cars were loaded with material to repair tracks, but its forward artillery wagon contained a 76 VK mountain gun, two 7.62 maximums on both sides of the turret pointing forward, six maxims pointing to the sides, and then eight other Maxim machine guns on the roofs as anti-aircraft weapons. Its rear artillery wagon also had a 76 VK mountain gun, two Maxims pointing forwards, and six more on the sides as well. All this firepower was sorely lacking because only two regiments of the Finnish 12th Division of a couple of thousand border guards and irregulars known as J-34 and J-36 were based along the Suojavi front, armed with a handful of light artillery pieces. It didn't take long for the Russians to overcome their resistance on December 2nd, although they had killed very few of the Finns, who then set fire to surrounding buildings. The nearby forest went up in flames. The next morning, however, it was time for the second part of quite a fiendish Finnish plan. The commander of Company J-34 had dreamed up a counter-attack philosophy based on the topography. Colonel Taitanen was a man of the region. He'd been born and raised here and the landscape was etched in his memory. He knew every kink, every snowdrift. The idea was to leave a few men along the Pitsoinyoki River to cause the Russians some strife while holding most of the two companies at Kivijavi, which split the main road. They would be out of sight and in an ideal position to strike anywhere as the woods here were particularly impenetrable. Mannerheim, though, wanted something a bit more conventional and ordered Colonel Titanen to march back down the Lamoila Road dragging his two tiny guns straight towards the Russians. Titanen tried to explain that they had no hope using this conventional tactic. In spite of his repeated attempts to convince Mannerheim to change his mind, he was ordered back along the road. This inevitably led to a heavy defeat for the Finns here, and Company J-34 ran from the Russian tanks until the men of J-36 managed to blow up a small bridge and halted the Russian advance. The fearsome armoured train arrived on the Finnish side of the bridge and opened fire on the Russian force across the river, and the Finns dug in quickly as the train, cannon and machine gun fire kept the enemy's head down. Titanin withdrew his J-34 company to the Kolar River, and it was here that the famous Kolar Front developed. The story of this train filled Finns with hope, all the more so because it was Finland's Independence Day on December 6th. In the following days, Finns across the country would shout, Kola still stands as proof of their indomitable spirit, the spirit of Sisu, of guts. This relatively insignificant river became the symbol of their resistance. 
The Russians advanced slowly towards Kolar, only arriving on December 6th. It's even more ironic that Kolar was called a river, which was only a few metres wide. In a countryside of thousands of lakes and waterways hundreds of metres wide, it was this tiny geographical feature that became so important. But it wasn't just a simple irony. Had the Russians broken through here, it would have given them impetus into the back door of the Karelian Isthmus. In the first few days, the Finns fought from foxholes here, and the battles turned into a war of attrition, a bit like what's going on in parts of Ukraine today. Anti-tank rocks had been rolled onto the road. Behind these dugouts and bunkers grew hewn out of the frozen land. Only six guns were based here, facing the Russians, who came in waves of tanks and men. Most of the Finns' guns fired black powder charges. They were so old. At first, the Russians charged straight down the road to be hit by these old guns. Two or three tanks began to smoke. The rest retreated. Behind them, the Red Army soldiers were now pinned down. Soon, the Russians began spreading their attacks wider and wider beyond the road, one Finnish regiment facing a Russian division. The Red Army brought in reserves. Another division rushed forward, while the Finns managed to cobble together another regiment. Eventually, there were four Russian divisions fighting here against two Finnish regiments. The Russian Air Force bombed the Kolai defenders and brought in extra artillery batteries. Still, the Finns held on. Into the second week of December, managing to keep these divisions from crossing the north shores of Lake Ladoga, while General Hochlund planned his counterattack on the Russian salient, pinned with its left flank up against the lake. This battle was going to continue all the way until the end of January. But before then, we turn our attention to the Battle of Sumusalmi, an event that has taken on mythical status and is taught at military academies as an example of what a motivated small army can do against a much bigger foe. Next episode, we'll focus on that seminal battle, one that has echoed down the ages, particularly as Russia has rekindled fears of an invasion of both the Baltic states and its use of immigrants as a weapon who are being sent across the Finnish border in 2023. Vladimir Putin may be using an old Stalinesque playbook, rededicating his people to Cold War philosophies, but it's at the sharp edge of military intelligence where real conflict begins and ends. In many ways, Sumasami is the metaphor for that. Please head off to the website abwarpodcast.com where you'll find a page dedicated to the series and links to the audio. We'll also be using desmondlatham.blog for regular updates. Until next, goodbye.